Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. It's time for another episode, our monthly book club episode, our third monthly book club episode. Hey, we're on a schedule. Look at that. We're uh, basically quarterly at this point. (laughs) We're crushing it, okay? Like, we've done three of these. I don't know. I just posted our congratulations. We have 500 followers. In 10 months. And I was thinking back to when I used to be like, we have like 50. And I'm like, I'm still just as excited. I was excited for 50 as I am for 500. And I just want to say thank you to everybody who's found us because honestly, our marketing is exactly what I said it is, which is I exist. So I'm happy you're here. Tell your friends because we don't have any money to pay for advertising. (laughs) We spend it all on audio equipment. Not that you can tell from... and subscriptions to digital platforms. I was also listening to our sneak peek episode of this, and I realized that I'd make a lot of mouth sounds like whoop, 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 and <laughs> and it made me want to watch Spaceballs. And I was like, why? And then I remembered there's that guy in the 80s that did all the, not that I am in any way in the league of the guy that did all the sound effects in the 80s. Right. But do you remember the guy that was, that was oh, yeah. his thing? And he had this moment where he was in everything. Police Academy. What happened to that guy? I feel like now we need to do a deep dive. He's still what around. Happened to him. I mean, at what point were they like, yeah, that's done. That shtick's done. Nobody's told Will Ferrell that. And honestly, uh, I'd rather Jim watch him. Jim Carrey's movie with the- comedy style has changed. Yeah, but I mean, did that guy go on and try to do a dramatic role where he made no mouth sounds and everybody was like, nah, get the fuck out. We don't want you here. I don't know. But that's a rambling way of saying we're about to talk about a pretty interesting book, The Geometry of Ocelots. Geometry for Ocelots. Yeah, that one by Exerbia. (laughs) That was a test. You passed the test. Congratulations. Um, Before we get started and I read the quote that I want to start us out with. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Matt. Welcome to the Strange and Beautiful Book Club. All right, I think I need to start us out with this quote because we read quite a few quotes last time and it worked because this book is so fucking quotable. And also I feel like it really sets us off for where this book goes and what this book is about and what I think we're probably going to talk about for the majority of however long we talk about this. But a tear fell down Anaximander's cheek. He bent to Leo's ear and said, Dr. Tereshkoff, normally I wouldn't be so blunt. But these are the final days, and only honesty is befitting. I am just a man. I never saw the meta-yes. It was but an unsuccessful myth to try to keep our species humble long enough to survive. Quieter. I choose to believe even those enigmatic higher-dimensional creatures I spied, even the beings above them, have not seen nature's true face. Even they are no closer than us to understanding what reality is doing here. 
else they would have descended to tell the truth in a manner we might understand, and no one would die ignorant ever again. So whatever happens next, allow yourself to be warmed, if only for a minute, by the knowledge that not even the gods know what the dirt is doing here. So that's at the end of the book. <laughs> kind of the twisty end, which I was not, I did not see coming at all. This book is full of twists. Um, yes. Yes. So it's like a conversation with me. The one, only because <laughs> you forgot your initial point. It's not hey. a twist. It's uh, not it's a not twist wrong. if it's not intentional. <laughs> it, it can still be a twist. Unexpected twists. It's a shock even to uh -huh. you that makes it even yeah. extra twisty? Yeah. Okay, that's fine. Um, yeah, so I think the elephant in the room for me was that Mariga is my least favorite character type, my least favorite character trope, which is effectively, this is like, the whole book is a headlong rush with Armageddon, with the end of the world. Yeah. Apocalypse. And what is Mariga but the douchebag dude who has his own little kingdom where he's the douchebag king of douchebag kingdom and he doesn't want to give up his douchebag power and he ends up spending half of the book keeping our heroes from being able to actually successfully save the world because he doesn't want to give up all of his douchebag power over his douchebag kingdom. Yeah. And I hate that plot line. I yeah. hate that plot line with the fiery passion of a thousand suns. I who hate nothing hate that okay nothing will get me to dnf a book or turn off a movie faster and i will admit if we were not reading this for the book club right about the time that he lures hisar hisaria hisaria into his thrall i would have been like and done and done however all of that being said, <laughs> this is the one time I'm glad I finished because I feel like there was a payoff. So in Vesper, there's no fucking payoff. He's just an asshole. He ruins everything. Everybody dies. The end. Yeah. And in this one, he ruins everything. Everybody dies. The end. But you get this like, okay, here's why. Like, here's what was happening. And you, it makes so much sense that it feels like a, a genuine payoff at the end. I was like, oh, okay. I am not mad now. I'm not mad within the last 10 pages of this book. So congratulations, because I hope you've read this book, because here's the twist ending. We get to the end, and Lepus and Leo and Mariga all end up at this planet that has been, or this celestial body that's been sending out signals. Annika. Annika. And as they arrive, Mariga just straight up starts murdering everybody because everybody believes that this is like their last best hope, that Anaximander has hidden some thing here. And if they can just. Some secret get holy it, technology. If they can just get this magic technology, they will be able to save the galaxy and no one will have to die and everything will be okay. But when they get there, Mariga's already there because Mariga's figured out how to travel in the dimension above Vex. Five space. Five space. Yeah. Uh, Nibbana. And. He's just straight up starts murdering everybody. And so then he's killing Leo and he's killing Lepus and he's destroying 
Theodora and everything is bleak and shitty and and hopeless. And then all of a sudden, woof, 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 we're back on Earth. And Leo wakes up in his bed and somebody's cooking breakfast. And it's very um, the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes, like, it's a vision world that was uh, constructed for him. How did we get here? And then we find out that all along, Anaximander was Lepus and Marika and Ursula, and that he had split himself into three to try to save the galaxy, believing that where he had failed alone, his separate disparate parts could succeed. The parts of him without the knowledge that they were him. Right. Because part of the trifurcation procedure erases who you were. So he needed to erase who he was so he could come at this from a non-judgmental angle so that he could start fresh. He could have a fresh fall of snow and forge new paths. And this is a, this is a, I don't know, trope. If you've only ever seen it like three times, is it a trope or is uh, it just like it's novel more than plot? Once? Anyway, this is a trope that I've seen so rarely, but I like it. Yeah. Where... Story device, maybe, then? Yeah, a, a yeah. narrative device. Yeah. He was, like, poisoned by his history, and he needed to remove that because he knew the spirit of himself wanted to save the world. Yeah. But his history, his past he had, had poisoned ballast. him. He had too much He had too much baggage. Yeah. And he needed to remove that baggage to actually become the kind of person that could save the world. Right. Yeah, it's an, it took me by surprise, even though I should have seen it coming because we trifurcate two characters. It never occurred to me that, well, we kind of discussed this. It's because we don't ever, they don't all get introduced at the same time. Right. We get Mariga and Ursula. Yeah. And then much later we get Lepus. But by the time we meet Lepus, he's already trifurcated himself. Right. And we never actually have, like, the three disciples of Anaximander together. Right. They're separated by space and by, like, narrative distance. And the whole concept of trifurcation gets introduced way after we've, like, established the characters of Ursula and Mariga. Right. Yeah. And so we don't, we don't have that like close association of oh trifurcation, oh the three disciples of Anaximander. You know what I thought about this book, and I was thinking about it when I was trying to decide what I wanted to say about it, and I thought, you know what this book captures better than any other book I think I've ever read, is that, that? feeling you get when things change, and you can look back at the way they used to be. And you miss it. Mm. That nostalgia for what was before. But also the realization that you can never hold that. Right. Like when you have kids. There are certain stages that are super fun. And you think, oh, I wish this was forever. But you know every time, every day you have it, you know that's one fewer day you're going to have it because... It's constantly in motion and changing. Because, like, Johannes and Ursula create that 
world. They create that city. Mm-hmm. Bodhi. Bodhi. And it's a ideal paradise at the very beginning. Everybody's working together. It's small. They have a currency, but mostly it's everybody just chipping in, working together, trying to make the world a better place. And yet over time it grows and they need more organization. And with organization comes the need to defend the city and then they get a military and then the military wants to be on the council. And then it just becomes this spiraling upward disconnect from the roots of what it was. And the probably for me, aside from Mariga, the most frustrating part of the book was the way that Ursula does not defend her daughter. Right, yeah. Because she's willing to in run this away society, with her. Her daughter is, you know, like shunned, like outcast. she's getting outcast. Yeah. And Ursula does nothing to kind no, of encourage her all. or train her or Just, like teach her to be strong and like don't worry what those bullies are saying to you. Yeah, she doesn't even sit her down and talk to her about it. Right. She's just like, oh, honey. No, we don't address it that I know of. She's like, no, I'm not going to teach you how to use what you have. Yes, I know you're, I know you have these powers and abilities that nobody else has, but I'm not even going to explain to you what they mean. And so, of course, the first person who's like, I'll, I'll teach you to, to defend yourself. You are powerful and you are special and you are better than them. And all you have to do is come with me and then... Um, we will crush them beneath our feet. And she's like, sounds great. Let's do that. I'm all in. I am all in because she looked to her mother for help and her mother had none to give. She explains things to Leo that she never explains to her daughter. It's because Leo is interested in the science and engineering, which is what she is. Right. Like, focused on. Well, she could have explained that to Hisara as well. It just is like, here's the type of math and stuff that you'll use to be able to travel through Vex. Because she can travel through Vex at will. Her cells make Moksha. Right. So she doesn't even need... All we really had to do to save the universe was synthesize that technology. Right. Make the it ability so everybody to... can do that. Yes. But then Mariga doesn't get the same foothold of power because his power is the fact that he's the only one who has the moksha fields. He who controls the spice. Controls, controls the, universe. the universe. Yeah, but I was shocked at the overall quality of this book. I have some really long highlights because I was like, wow, that entire passage spoke to me and I feel like I need to highlight the whole thing. Yeah. And in the end, it was a little bit melancholy because it doesn't end happy. It doesn't end happy for our characters. Right. It ends sort of bitterly happy in that... The Hopeful. I guess, yeah, but yeah. the two characters that have been pulled apart by circumstance, Leo and Isara, Isaria, um, end up back together, and she reads him the story that he wrote for her. Right. She, he was the only person who was ever kind and compassionate to her. Yeah, and didn't want anything from her right and then that the part where she pulls the story out and she reads just the first couple of lines and it's like where is mama where is papa where is my brother yeah uh, that part was a little um 
Those were hard. Full <laughs> emotional. Because her parents had just committed suicide to... In front of her. In front of her. Yeah. To keep themselves from being used against Leo anymore. Yep. Because Leo had just been sent off to try and lure Lepus in so that they could get the formula for... Jana Moksha. Yana, yeah, Jana Moksha. The, like, super Moksha. Um, from Lepus, even though he didn't know it. Uh, and in all of this, it's a very heavy book. There's a lot of very heavy themes. A very a lot of um, cur- currently resonant themes. The idea of um, no matter how well-meaning every species will eventually exceed its resources. I mean, we're right in the middle of that right now. So that definitely resonated. But then we get these really funny moments, like when Leo meets Lepus for the first time, and he's just oh, yeah. he's the bedfellow. As the bedfellow, yeah. Yeah, and there's a scene where he comes down, Leo comes down, he goes to this planet where there's a college, the Gearheart, and he can't find any place to stay except this one broken down motel. And he comes down the day after, after this bedfellow crashed with him. <laughs> when he's like, um, this isn't your bed. And he goes, yeah, that's relative. Whose bed this yeah, is. Ownership is, is relative. Ownership is relative. And then he comes down and he's like, yeah, what way to the dean's office? And they're like, um, what are the, the, the little boy says something. I think I highlighted it. Yeah, we kept like reading yeah, each other child, our highlights. I know. And we'd highlighted the same thing. <laughs> the child said, the journey is the destination. Or do you have a map of Gearheart maybe? The bald proprietor said, a map is not the territory. A blueprint is not the house. And this part I thought was really funny because you've been sending me a lot of memes about um, like keeping men away from podcast microphones. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there was one where the guy was going to podcast and somebody comes in with like a squirt bottle and they're like, no, no podcasting. <laughs> and he leans into the microphone again. They're like, no. And they shoot him with the water. And I thought, to me, that line felt very much like the embodiment of that empty philosophy, that deepity, deepities, the the sense of I'm saying something so it profound. It sounds profound, but it's actually hollow. It's actually meaningless because there's nothing behind it. Yeah. And I thought that was hysterical because, of course, Lepus is like, the he's the mad rabbit. He's the crazy He's the chaos. He's Examander's chaos. Right. And I, I think he's kind of the opposite of Deepity's. He says things that are profound, but they sound superfluous. Yes, exactly. And then they go to that, like they go to a bar and Leo ends up pulling rank to get them from, to keep them from getting arrested. He's like, oh no, I'm a member of the Holy Family. And and this guy's my friend. And he goes, I'm not his friend, the bedfellow said. And if you let me back inside, I'll fucking do it again. <laughs> this was the last time he would be treated in such a disrespectful manner. And began, he began to urinate on the coffee machine. <laughs> I really liked this character. Yeah, Lepus was a good, good character. Yes. He was profound when he needed to be profound, light when he needed to be light, and compassionate when he needed to be compassionate and still flawed as a person yes deeply flawed yes yeah oh yeah like he he loses the like the university and i like leo's gone i liked alcoholism as a metaphor for 
man's inability to moderate himself. Yes. Uh, yes, I thought the use of people getting drunk. Yeah. Uh, chronically was very well applied. It's a very micro version of the macro story because every time they have some kind of success, everyone immediately goes out and gets drunk. And in the story, every time something happens that feels like a success, immediately something excessive happens that fast forwards us closer to Bivnik, yeah. to galactic collapse. There's so many layers of things in here. The alcoholism is metaphor, but also the spiles. And I thought this was right. a stroke of they're genius. They're just introduced at the beginning. Yeah, they're just, yeah, that's a spile. Oh, okay. All right. And then we have that cool line, I'll find it and read it, because of course I've probably highlighted it. It is without question that we live inside a dream. I do not mean this world is illusory or submissive to one's will. Rather, you will have noticed that when inside a dream, despite the contorted narrative and the sudden return of friends long dead and a crack in the sky, for as long as you are asleep, the logic holds. It is only upon waking that you realize there was no logic to the dream at all. The waking world is no different. Yes, we are familiar with the presentations of light and sound and time. Yes, we are aware that two objects cannot occupy the same space, that eleven is a prime number, and so on. But what is the logic beneath these presentations? Why, what is so self-evident about light or sound or time? The answer is nothing. The world is not comprehensible. It is only that we have been asleep so long, its incomprehensibility has become familiar. And that's basically the spiles. We're introduced to them immediately. And in the way of all sci-fi, we just accept their existence. Yep. This is a technology. This is a creature they found this is a we don't know and then as time goes on the mystery of the spiles deepens but it deepens so slowly that right that you don't even notice does, you don't even really notice it because at first they're just a thing and then Mariga's like oh no those are like less than animals we don't like them around yeah, here yeah they're on, we consider them on the level of beasts yeah and then we find out there's more spiles because Madeline goes off and brings more back. And we find out they can... Well, they go to the city, the, like, yeah, ruined she, and city. and she brings more back. And, the, yeah, there's... Well, they're there. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's some there. And I thought the spiles went off and brought other spiles back. Yeah, and then we find out they can change shape and they can construct things. And then we find out they have, like, they've vowed never to harm or interfere... And then we find out that they are fully aware of how to navigate in Vex space by intuition alone. Hmm. Hmm. But they cannot reveal anything about their technology or their knowledge or anything about how they know the things they know. And then the reveal at the end, of course, is that the Spiles are the remnant of another race. From another galaxy. From another galaxy. And I really liked... It, so, in a lot of sci-fi books, when we go to, like, oh, we have interstellar travel. Once you can do interstellar travel, you can do intergalactic travel. But hell no. Uh -uh. Like, that's, that's orders of magnitude, like, more distance you have to travel. And 
it's just inconceivable how far you have to travel. Right. The only other time I've seen this done well, or I don't know, the first thing that comes to mind when I think of another story that kind of accurately portrayed the the extra effort to travel to another galaxy is Stargate Atlantis or Stargate um, um, universe. Where, yeah. Where, where the one they, where they're on the ship, the big they're, ship. They're stuck on this ship. Yes, I love I fucking and this love that ship one. has been traveling for a million years or something like that. Yeah. At faster than light travel in one direction. In one. And it, it's just getting to a galaxy. Yeah. And, and they're all like, uh, we haven't, like, this is way beyond anything we've ever had to do before. Like, right. we can't even conceive of what's the energies involved to cover that distance. Shit. Yeah. We're stuck. And then Mass Effect had a fourth game, Mass Effect Andromeda, where the Milky Way galaxy is shot and it takes 700 years or something to get to the Andromeda galaxy. Yeah. And it's a one-way trip. You're not going back. Right. But a lot of times, interstellar travel, intergalactic travel, pff, whatever. What's the difference? We've solved all of those problems. Right. Not, no. But it, it is established. I think in Babylon 5, they don't travel outside the galaxy. I think they get, I think that's referred to Probably. as beyond the rim. Yeah. Because that's the last step. You get developed enough you can leave the galaxy you right. can go, go beyond out the, into the dark you can go out into the dark yeah i always like it when we actually figure that stuff out we're like oh right. it's, okay it's like established here that nope nope yeah yeah as attractive as it sounds difficult we can't do that right in fact that ends up being like the fact that you have to get over the bivnik effect you have to survive long enough to develop inter galactic travel like going outside your galaxy to another galaxy is like a litmus test yeah it, it's a it's a filter a civilization filter yeah i like that yeah i thought that was really good i think i told you it reminded me of the dark forest idea the fact yes. that we don't know that other aliens exist because they're hiding because the threat that being discovered by another race will mean being discovered by a hostile race or even high. even non-hostile races, they they acknowledge that all technological advances come in these huge leaps. Yeah, where you make one discovery and that quickly expands your technological capacity like exponentially. If you encounter a civilization that is less advanced than you, you don't know when they're going to have their next breakthrough and they may very quickly exceed you. your te technological capacity and you can't trust that they won't become violent. Right. Because civilization by nature engenders conflict. And so if you find a civilization that is less advanced than you, the prudent thing is to wipe them out before they have a technological leap. And wipe you out. And wipe you out because at any point you could have a technological leap and leap back ahead of them and wipe them out. Right. And so 
civilizations that realize this hide. Yeah. And we get a few perspectives through the series where... Well, you're talking about the books. I was just talking about the generalized theory. Okay. Well, the theory comes from the books. Yeah. There's a book yeah. about the Dark Forest. Don't talk anymore because we already spoiled one book series Okay. Yeah, the, the series is called The Three-Body Problem. Yeah. By uh, Sijuan Liu. Um, I know you really enjoyed author. it. Maybe we'll yes. add it to the list eventually. It's, it's a lot. It's good. It's long. But it's good. I just read some Sarah J. Mass books that were almost a thousand pages long. I that's, think I can that's a probably fair point. It. Yeah. Um, yeah, you have you have been through the gauntlet on <laughs> yes. reading long books. At this point, the Malazan series the is not intimidating. Yeah, once more into the breach, dear friends, is really where I'm at here. Um, the last charge of the light brigade. So oh they quote that in Babylon five too. This is a sign we need to start our Babylon 5 series. All right. So do we want to work through plot beats? Well, hang on. So I have another book things. that I feel like this reminds me of. Okay. Right. The plot, the is, plot a vehicle. is a vehicle for the philosophical and like sociological concepts. Yeah. And the micro versions of what's happening macro wise. Like when Leo meets Marta and Marta has all of these ideas that he's long since just dismissed where she's like, yeah. We can spend all of our math figuring out how to survive jumping off the cliff, or we could just not jump. Right. What, what do we need to do? What to do we need to do to just get ourselves to not jump? Not jump. And he's like, oh, you know, oh, hopeless optimism of the youth. And then he's like, actually, wait a minute. Maybe we need hopeless optimism because clearly um, alcoholic uh, sarcasm and defeatistness <laughs> is not getting us through this. I felt for the Leo character, I felt like the Leo character could have easily been one of those characters that you're just like, uh, I roll. But he just felt like a little boy who didn't get to spend enough time with his mom. Yeah. And he missed his parents. And he missed his forever, sister. And he missed his family. And all he ever wanted was to live in his house in Bodhi and learn math and hang out with his family and follow in his dad's footsteps. And that was it. He didn't want anything else for himself. And because of the life that he was, because of what Hisara did, he didn't get that life. He got his parents taken from him. He got everything taken from him by Mriga and his sister. And I don't really get the feeling that he hated his sister. We don't ever really address it. He never really thinks about her. He's just like, I really wish I could hug my mom one more time. And I think the fact that Exerbia was able to create this character that could very easily have been one of those just whiny, obnoxious, annoying dudes that never grew up, but instead becomes this like melancholy, I've been tasked with this thing that I never wanted to do alone. And my only real companion is an alcoholic rabbit dude <laughs> wild man wild like feral feral dude and i'm doing my best but i'm not the person that would that needed to have this role i'm just the person that got it and he finally finds someone and he falls in love as a father falls in love with a daughter with mm -hmm. marta 
and he empowers her with everything she needs. And he does it. He succeeds. It's his one success. He gives her every tool that she needs to be able to succeed at this. And Mariga kills her. Yep. And then in the end, he loses everything. And it's a really sad, bittersweet character. And I thought it was really well done. And you know what this reminds me of is Ishmael. Yes. Uh, Ishmael the book. So when I, in our like sneak peek episode, I called it sci-fi Siddhartha. Yeah. And I didn't realize it was going to be like that on point. That it literally is Siddhartha. Like he, he literally intentionally created a religion in assuming that the religion would be enough to like encourage moderation. And instead, right, they, they borrowed, they created an Xmander's mythology based on old Earth mythologies yeah. that were, that have been dead so long that nobody would have remembered them. Right. And noticed the similarity. Right. And it literally is Siddhartha. And he was hoping religion would solve the problem as if religion ever solves any problem. But in the end, religion is ultimately what destroys everything. Right. Because Mariga is the one that dismantles everything everything they put together he tears apart the unending pursuit for a higher realm the use of religion to maintain power well yeah like the thing that mariga is questing for yeah is like a higher state of being but he's like aggressively pursuing that and religion is the tool and framework that he uses in an exploitative way yeah. to keep keep going for it. Yeah, but it reminded me of the scene in Ishmael where mm-hmm. he's talking about the creation myth and how damaging the creation myth of Adam and Eve is. The fact that Adam and Eve were given, Adam as a stand-in for humankind, yeah. was given the earth and that it is ours to take care of. As if the earth can be owned and as if it requires our care right. to succeed. It requires maintenance. Yeah, right. As if, and so the whole idea in Ishmael is we neither own the earth nor are required for it to continue spinning. And that's the one thing I think is probably the scariest thing for people and maybe the hardest thing for people to grasp is the climate crisis will not destroy earth. Right. There's a web comic that someone made and it was like a human talking to the avatar of mother earth. Like, I'm so sorry. Like we're poisoning you. We're killing everything. You know, we're making earth uninhabitable and I'm sorry that we're, we're killing you. And mother earth responds. Oh, you're not, yeah, you're, you're not, not killing, killing me. me. Yeah, you're making it uninhabitable. Only uninhabitable for you. Yeah. You're killing yourselves. You're killing I'll yourselves. still be here. Life will still be here. Life will adapt and continue after you're long gone. And I'm sorry that you're doing that to yourselves. Right. Yeah. It reminded me of that. And also the scene where he's talking about evolution and he's talking about He's getting him to tell that. Ishmael, oh, the story of. Uh, the story of man. And so he's yes. like, okay, let's and tell it from the point of view of the jellyfish. Yes. And he goes He goes through the whole evolution. And then there was and, jellyfish. Yeah. And then came the jellyfish. 
And he's like, okay, well, what's next? And he's like, from the point of view of the jellyfish, nothing. They are the culmination of evolution. The jellyfish believes it is the point of all evolution. Every species believes it is the point of all evolution. The the Davins, the Devons, believe, and then came the Devons. And that's why we are the best. We are the pinnacle of evolution. We are the height of everything that could be. And it is on us to solve this problem because we own the earth and it is required that we take care of it. We are its stewards. And it kind of made me want to read Ishmael again. Yeah. I haven't read it in a really long time, but that book is so good. Okay, so this this plot is the butter. Oh, no. The philosophy is the butter on uh, a very large slab of artisanal bread. And the bread would be the plot. Yes. (laughs) But it's not like white wheat. It is like... um, Multigrain... Yeah, multi-grain uh, like with a... ancestral wheat. <laughs> <laughs> Sour bread. Sour bread. Sourdough the, bread. The one where they just leave the sponge out and it collects yeast from the air. That That's that's the kind of bread it is. Okay, we'll do the first 25% sort of shorthand because we've already covered it. Because we start out with Ursula and Ursula goes to like the hippie commune, like the hippie com like Burning Man. Basically, so they have... Well, it's Burning Man at a plantation where there's literal indentured servants. That they eat sometimes. That they eat. For kicks. They eat the kids sometimes. Yeah. So she goes there to... Veal. Human veal. She goes there to talk about... I'm sorry, I had like a visceral reaction to the way you said human veal. I had to like <laughs> take a moment and pause. Because Hashtag at the, winning. At the very beginning, he feed, Mariga feeds Ursula... Some of the, he calls it moksha infused beef. And she says, there's no cows here. She says, from the look of it, it's not more than a year or two old. And when he eats it, there's blood spatter. Or she says he gets it all over. He eats like an animal. He eats like really, really messily. Yeah. And that imagery, sorry, just like popped in my head. And I had to take a moment and refocus. So. So we really set this guy up as the. Big baddie. Yeah, from the very beginning, because he's immediately interrupting Ursula, keeping her from telling what she needs to tell, even though she's trying to talk to Theodora. He insults Theodora. I think we've covered he's a hate-tubble character. So we go immediately from that to she meets Johannes, and Johannes and hers relationship does blossom really quickly. It goes from, I've met you by this lake, and... We've had kind of a conversation to, I find you drinking in a tree and we hang out for a bit to, hey, why don't we have transcendental sex in the moksha field and I'll awaken your inner sight and you'll be able to think and reason like a, like a higher level being. And then we go from that to, hey, let's start a revolution. Not really. She's getting ready to leave. She's getting ready to go talk to the council and she ends up staying because Johannes gets put on trial for waking people up because he's been taking people into the moksha fields and waking them up. Right. Against the, there's this rule that the moksha is poisonous. So if humans go near it, they have to wear a mask. Right. And, and I think Johannes kind of comments, why do we, why is it poisonous to us, but it's not poisonous to the devas, which I think Johannes is supposed to be like the most 
exploratory, like curious person of the community, but they've all been suppressed by the Contra Moksha. Yeah. And he's kind of the only one like pushing the upper boundary of being suppressed by the Contra Moksha. And that's why he goes wandering outside the village. Yeah. And that's why Ursula's kind of like interested in him. Right. It's like, oh, like everybody else is just happy, not curious, not doing anything interesting. But here's this one guy that goes out wandering and he's like, recognizes that he's suffering. So he drinks to cover that. And okay, I'm going to wake him up. And oh, he is an interesting person. I would like to be with this person. Yeah, and we find out basically the mayor is feeding everybody contra moksha. Yeah. Um, in exchange for him getting as much moksha as he wants. Yeah, in exchange for him being able to be what he... He gets um, special treatment because he's colluding. Mm-hmm. And he hides the fact that, you know, babies are getting eaten and stuff. Children are getting eaten. So we go from that to Johannes gets put on trial and then... Ursula shows up for him because he ends up getting sentenced to death. And so she shows up and starts killing Davins. Right. She's, she was on the way to like join Theodora to make her big appeal in front of the, the Davin union, like the big, I don't know, like Supreme court or Congress or whatever, uh, to try to convince like the entire civilization guys, we need to hold back on this stuff. And, and she's like, Johannes, I'll be like, I think she's kind of saying goodbye because it's going to, it's such a long travel she to won't be coming the back. Galactic Center. And Mariga may not let her back. Yeah. Yeah. But before she really gets far out of the way, she's like, no, I can't leave Johannes. And so she shows back up just in time because they've had him on this mock trial for execution. Yeah. And... She does the executing. Right. Yes. She kills, She bites the heads off a bunch of people. <laughs> and they go on the run. And they end up finding a city, an ancient human city. Well, and she, there was an extended battle. And the only person that she saved other than Johannes was a baby. Oh, yeah. They pick up a baby. And they go on the run with this baby. And they end up finding an ancient human city, which it turns out is Bodhi. Body. Bodhi. And they end up going there and living there. And there is a whole bunch of technology there, ancient technology, like a field to keep Davins from being able to just walk into town. Through a force, through Through, Vex. Yeah, like a Vex force field. And there's spiles there and they sort of build a little community because they are living there. Basically having sex whenever they want and just hanging out and eating and raising this baby. And the Spiles are helping raise the baby and they end up naming the baby Leo. Leo. Because uh, that's because what Ursula is Johannes. From. Johannes recognizes a constellation, right? Well, and she, he's he like, asks but I never knew. From. Oh, okay. And she tells him and he goes, okay, well, that's, let's name it that then. Let's name the oh, baby Oh, and that's that. why they name the daughter after where he's he from. He's from, yeah. Okay. But Johannes goes out on a supply run, and he ends up rescuing these two people from a Davin that's trying to kill them. And so he brings them back, or three people. Yeah. He brings these three people back, and they join the, join the town. 
And then they start going out on more, like, active rescue missions. Right, and they start destroying moksha fields. It becomes more of a proactive revolution, less of a passive revolution. And um, really, everything sort of ramps up. The city gets bigger. The city gets more organized. The city gets more militant. And through it all, they end up having a baby together. But because she was conceived in the moksha, Isara Isaria is not fully human. She has right. the hexagonal pupils of the Davins. And she is a source of conflict because she looks like their oppressors. Right. And so she gets um, treated. Treated like she's one of the oppressors. They behead her stuffed animal. They behead an actual ocelot and hang it on the side of their house. They graffiti their house. And through it all, Ursula does exactly fuck and all to protect her daughter. They don't move out of the center of town. They don't do literally anything. And I think they don't prepare Hisaria. They don't try to talk to like the other parents to shame the kids for being bullies. Yeah. Nothing. It's frustrating. That's probably the most frustrating part. But what it does is leave Hisaria open to Mariga because there's a pool, a Vex pool. And long ago, Ursula boarded it up. Put yeah, a she had on the it, spiles. And she has the only key. But Hisaria steals the key and she goes into the Vex. And it makes kind of makes everybody aware of her. And so Mariga comes for her. And ends up taking her through the Vex out right, of the he, city. He calls her from this Vex pond. Yeah. And kind of guides her how to walk through the wall. Yeah. And, okay, come on. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll teach you. Mm-hmm. And so he ends up um, brainwashing her yep. into becoming his servant. And so this, this kind of sets the, the foundation for, you know, here's our cast of characters. Yeah. We have Johannes and Ursula and Leo and Hisaria and Riga. Now Hisaria is gone. And Leo has been, Leo and Hisaria have been very close. He's very caring of her. Like he, he takes care of her because he's her big brother. Yeah. And he writes her that she, they're both upset that Ursula won't teach them stuff. Uh, So he decides, okay, like, she's been teaching me a lot of theoretics. I will write a book that you would be able to understand. Like, I can teach you from scratch all the theoretics. Yeah. And he calls it Geometry for Ocelots. Mm -hmm. Because she has a little ocelot stuffed toy. Yes. And so she identifies strongly with ocelots. And it's really sweet. It's like, there's a little baby ocelot and it's lost. Where is mama? Where is papa? Where's my brother? And it meets a beetle, and the beetle says they are up, up, up. And she goes, well, up doesn't exist. And it says, just because you've never gone up doesn't mean up doesn't exist. And so the ocelot learns how to travel in more dimensions than just the dimensions it's already traveled in. Just right, like just the vex. forward, back, left, right. Yeah. I, I want to read this quote. Um, I think Johannes says this to Ursula, because Ursula will never fully explain anything to him either. 
Mm-hmm. And he says, my mind is bigger now, and that's your fault. Don't take me to new lands and hide all the maps. Okay. And so then we fast forward. We from there to um, Hisaria is now. Oh, because um, Pechev, who becomes one of our douchebag dudes, who's a douchebag general of the douchebag king in douchebag town. Yeah. He sort of worms his way into the government and he does this on Gearheart and he does it in Bodhi where he corrupts from within. Mm-hmm. He gets the military added to the council. He gets more military presence. He makes the military, uh, he makes it a military city. Right. And he starts, he's working the system from the inside. And he undermines Ursula through Hisara, Hisaria. And when Hisaria comes back to the town years after she was taken away, even Ursula is like, hang on. Don't let her in. Let's check. This could not be safe. This could be somebody else. And Pechev's like, no, no, let her in. And she's like, no, I... No, I, we, we need to do a test. Yeah, like, we need to make sure this is going to be safe. And he's like, are you telling me you're not going to let your daughter in this town? Pechev, who spearheaded um, arming... Defending the town. Defending, the yeah. Who spearheaded, like, kicking Hisara out. Well, really, he did that, we find out, because Mariga. Um, he was always an inside agent. Yeah. Working for Mariga. And so as soon as they let Hisaria in the town, she turns into a giant ocelot that leaves a trail of fire behind it <laughs> and um, takes the town over by straight up murdering everybody. She murders everybody except for... Like Pachev and his loyalists. Yeah. And then Ursula, Johannes, and Leo. I thought for a second she'd killed her parents. Me too. It says um, we Me made too. she made sure they would bow for her and that they would In never In eternity. Stop. Yeah. And I was like, oh, did she, she just kill her parents? <laughs> That's some cold ass shit. But no, it turns out that they get chained to desks. And so they transform her father into a, a swan. Mm-hmm. And he is forced to do, like, mathematical calculations in perpetuity. And Ursula is always working on a new... Jana Moksha. Jana Moksha. Which she has actually made. Yeah. But... Or as the book says, she told him of how she'd perfected the substance, only to realize that the last thing a burning town needed was more wood. Right. (laughs) And so it's, it's her and... Lepus are the only ones who know the recipe. She's the only one who knows it, but Lepus knows she knows it. She I says think, that. She I goes think on untr- purpose. I'm oh, okay. Like, I'm the only one who had it. Gotcha. Because she didn't want anyone to be able... And he says it too. He goes, I couldn't tell you even if I wanted to. Because when I did... Even though I I eventually gained the knowledge when I trifurcated, I don't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. He He did eventually learn it, but that was before he got separated right so leo ends up also doing calculations and after a while they call him in and mariga assigns him with the task of going to gearheart and getting on lepus's side because at this point they have expanded their empire and the bodhi empire is taking over what used to be the daven union so they've taken over gearheart they need him to find lepus because lepus is missing and they need him to get the molecule for Janamaksha because that's how they're going to be able to travel and expand their empire faster 
and basically bring out bring the end of the world faster, even though Riga's not admitting that. Right. He, he's thinking they're not if, saying the quiet part out loud. Right. Well, he's thinking if they can get to Nibbana, they can travel to another galaxy, and then they'll have even more resources. Right. Instead of we need to work with what we got, it's we need to figure out how to get more, so that we can ever increase how much we need. So they send him to Gearheart on a Vex mule, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, which I think is like a creature. Yeah, I think it may a be a creature that can, can travel in Vex. That I don't explain it. It's fine. I don't yeah. need it explained. Yeah. And we get to Gearheart, and then we pick up with Leo. And Leo is maybe twenty or so at this point because mm-hmm. he was in he was a young teen or he was like twelve when. Um, his art when everything went down. Yeah, so he's and early twenties. Ten years, so he's really early twenties, and he's like ugly. He keeps saying it. He's <laughs> like, um, I have spots and my hair is oily, and you know, I'm just not Leo's. Just Leo. I just, I feel so bad. Like, I I feel for Leo. I don't feel bad for Leo, but I feel for Leo because he's just a regular dude who would have had a quiet, happy life, and he doesn't get it because. Immediately, he's like thrust into. He meets Lepus, even though he doesn't realize it's Lepus, because he goes to this inn, and a guy lays down in bed with him. Well, and the the lady and the kid that are running the inn are the other two parts of Lepus. Yeah, I don't know if Lepus just has this place set up for the three parts of himself, or if he like took it over whatever um or if it was like a trap specifically for someone coming to hunt him coming to locate him yeah but anyway and he knows pretty right quickly away. after leo oh, after leo gets there the the parts of lepus locate identify him yeah and they know he's there to um like get get all of the knowledge that lepus has and then kill him as painfully as possible and then return and the leverage that they have over him is his parents, which is why his parents almost immediately commit suicide. And they let him know, like, he has a goodbye note because they give him this piece of paper that has the molecule that they think right. is the, for Yohana, Yana Maksha. And on the back, written in, like, secret ink, is Ursula's... Invisible ink. Because Ursula's like, I love you, my son, and I'm sorry we didn't have more time together. And I'm doing this because this will set you free. And I hope someday we can meet again. But even if we don't, like I treasured every moment that we had together. The end. You should have said that to your daughter. (laughs) It's too late for that. I know. I know. You know what? I get stuck in this. Oh, She should have done that. But the whole point is that Ursula is not actually a god. Right. That she is the purely analytical aspect of Anaximander. Right. She is the, not the heart, she is the brain of an Aximander. And that reminded me of like the distinction between an ideology and a religion, where a religion is a comprehensive set of beliefs and practices, blah, blah, blah. But an ideology is like a subset of that that is not complete. Yeah. And thus doomed to lead you on the wrong path because it doesn't have all the tools that you need to deal with all the things that pop up in life. Right. They're not complete people. And so Lepus, Ursula, and Briga are each 
incomplete persons. Yeah. They are a focused subset of a complete person. And so they are all a little bit off, a little bit um, rigid, rigid, I guess, in what they are capable of doing. And so being compassionate to your daughter is not something that Ursula was really capable of. And being humble and like doubting your purpose in life was not something Mariga was capable of. Right. And curbing your impulses is not something that Lepus was really capable capable of. of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the the second secondly trifurcated Lepus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the the bedfellow is probably the funniest character. And I I love I really like that these characters don't like they're they're these distilled uh you know subsets of Anaximander and they so they have like big flaws, but we don't like the character doesn't grow to resolve the flaws. Right. They're intentionally two-dimensional. Right. The two-dimensionality is essential to the plot. And it's consistent. Yeah. And I like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So now Leo's on Gearheart. Yeah. And he meets uh, Bedfellow, which is Riga doesn't have any leverage on him. Right. And now he's stuck with Bedfellow and the lady and the kid. And this is when he starts drinking. Because he's like... He meets Bedfellow. He wakes up in the morning and the Bedfellow has stolen half of his money and is smoking a bong. <laughs> and he's like, um, did you take my money? And he's like, yeah, this shit's expensive. And he's like, but if you give me more money, I can get more of it. And he's like, no, I'm trying to find the I'm trying to find the dean's office. And he's like, oh, I'll take you to the dean's office. And they end up at a bar. And this is when he's like, um, we're going to have to drink this first. We have to fortify ourselves before we go find the dean's office. Right. He's like, but then I'm, I'm trying to find the... You like you said you'd showed me the dean's office. Okay, well I don't show the dean's office to people who don't drink this. Yeah, but alcohol is prohibited in right because the Bodhi it's all Empire. or nothing. Nobody takes the middle path, which is I think the the point. A big commentary on yeah in this book. So Leo has to decide like, do I stick with the principles of like this society I've been living in, in the Bodhi Empire, even though there's nothing holding me to that anymore except for my sister, but my sister, like, literally killed everybody I knew. Yeah. So not a whole lot. Uh, So do I hold, maintain, like, the traditions that I lived with, or do I adjust and, you know, work with this guy? Yeah. So he just stays. I think he stays because he doesn't ever really know what to do with himself. And so the one thing he knows he can do is math. And he can help by using what he can do to try to stop Bivnik, which is why they stay. And he ends up taking over as dean of the university and creating an entire department whose sole purpose is figuring out how to avert the end of the galaxy. And we kind of fast forward again, like 20 years, and he's an alcoholic dean who runs this department, which has made very little actual progress. 
Except that they're very close to figuring out how to travel in Vex without using Moksha. Right. Just pure technology. Right. And they have a whole wall, which I liked the wall that has the plates with all the tenets of Bivnik on it. Oh, yeah. It's all like the core theories and principles. Yeah. And, and it says, um, with a fluid eye for mathematics, one could discern three shining laws from the master plates of the schema. One, the resources of any environment, however plentiful, are limited. Two, the materials need the material needs of any technically competent civilization, however noble, will eventually exceed the resources of its environment. Three, when those resources are depleted, the civilization will experience total political and technological collapse. And so we pick up there, and essentially he's still going through the motions. But is he really... He's jaded. Yeah. So this is when we meet Marta. Because he starts a class. And it's really like the token class. It's right. like... It's, it's the new year, new group of students taking the class. Yeah. Everybody takes Philosophy 101 because it's taught by the drunk dean and it's funny, but nobody actually sticks with it. Right. And it's the basic principles of Bivnik. Because, yes, they're studying it, but is anybody taking it seriously? Not really mm, anymore. Not really anymore. Except Marta who isn't even really in the college because she's too young. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who's like, um, can't we just not jump off the wall? Right. Can't we just moderate ourselves and not expand infinitely? Yeah. Um, and this is when he says, well, perhaps in another 20 years, all this awfulness, the weight of deanhood, of self-imposed sanity, of maintaining some semblance of responsibility, would seem just as silly as his teenage worries seem to him currently. There was no way to know but live through it and reflect later, then reflect on that reflection, and then die. Life's a bitch, and then you die. <laughs> That's Leo at the moment. Because he sees her, and he's like, God, I used to be like that. He's like, what happened to me? What? Why did I change? Why did I leave all that behind? What happened to my optimism? Where did it go? I don't know. Maybe I should drink until I find it again. <laughs> I keep waiting for him to clean up and get his act together. Mm -hmm. He never does. Not really. Mm -mm. He doesn't. And that's okay. And I, I don't need every character to become better. I think better. the character, like, that's his flaw. Yeah. And it doesn't get fixed. Because it's kind of part of who he is. It's like the only way that he knows how to live in this world is by coping with alcohol. And in spite of that flaw, I think he does come through like being like as honorable and noble as he's capable of being. Yeah. And I think his, I like his story arc. Yeah. I feel, for, I said that already. It's true. I feel for Leo. He's such a sympathetic character. Mm -hmm. He's that character that you're like, come on, stand up, get it together. And they just can't because he was never given the tools to do that. No one around him is helping him do right. that. The only person that he interacts with regularly, like in an intimate way, like friendship wise, is like double Lepus. Yeah. And... Lepus is way worse than he is on the alcohol and running away from problems. Yeah. And then he does end up, we see his moments of compassion. Like, 
the kind of compassion he would have inherited from his father, which is he and he adopts Marta, even though Marta's almost 18. He says, I, I know it's kind of silly, but perhaps you'd like to become my daughter. And she goes, I would love that. And then he sees homeless people and he's like, this is, or, you know, the unhoused. And he's like, this is ridiculous. We have a society. Right. He's out we, on a bender. Yeah. He's like, we have more yeah. than enough. There should be no reason that this exists. There should be no reason that we have slums. There should be no reason that we have people who have no homes. This is ridiculous. This shouldn't happen. And he meets like an unemployed person in the unhoused community. And he's like, show up at the office. I'll give you a job and I will fund your department. As long as you come up with a solution and make so make it so that nobody goes for goes for want of anything ever again, right? That make sure that nobody in this society lives the life that you're living right now, just because of lack of opportunities, right? Make and it, so make it happen. They basically make this whole like vocational educational program kind of thing they don't go we don't really describe what she does except that because he immediately leaves oh that's right because they figure out how to do the vex they figure out how to do the vex spaceship this is when we find out that the spiles know how to do this right and they figure out the missing thing marta figures out that vex space does have it's like normal space is the technical term is isomorphic which means from any direction, uh, all the directions look the same. Right. There is no inherent directionality in, in normal space. But in Vex, there is. And you have to be aligned with that when you're traveling. But they don't have like equipment or techniques sensitive enough to actually to discern that yeah. like in real time. So they need something to guide the ship all like in with respect to that like inherent directionality in Vex space. And so Marta starts talking to I think Madeline. Yeah, Madeline. Yeah. And so Madeline's kind of like, Yeah, we know how to do that. Yeah, but we we can't interfere. And she's like, what We if can't you- interfere. We can't show you we can't teach you how to do it. Right. And we can't do it in a way that would harm anybody. But we could just do it and not tell you how we're doing it. As long as you promise not to use this for, like, military purposes. Like, we're not going to pilot a ship that's going to attack people. But if you just need, like, transportation, we'd love to help you with transportation. Because, I think partly because this is a technology that could stave off the collapse. Right. And so the the spiles are here to prevent it. They're here yeah. to prevent big bivnik. And so they're like, okay, this little bit of cooperation, like until you get your your adding machines. I like how they never use the word computer yeah. or anything. Uh until you get your your adding machines like powerful enough to do this steering yourself will help you through that that transition period so that you can adopt these technologies and prevent the the collapse. Right. 
And so Marta comes to Leo with this and like, hooray, Marta <laughs> saved the day. Yeah. So Leo leaves. He, he ends up going to another planet because there's planets that have been messaging them, asking to join them to stand against the Bodhi Empire. And Gearheart has now fleets of these Vex boats and they've done like short trips, but they haven't done really any like long distance ones Yeah, with lots of people in them. Yeah. So they leave. He goes and he doesn't take Lepus, but he takes Marta. Right. And they ride on the Johannes, which I think is really funny. Yes. And the drunken scholar <laughs> is the other part. <laughs> and so they end I up. I like the names of the the ships yeah they go they sign this treaty and then and on it's, the way back, it's like this grand gesture yeah where they show up in the vex boats and this is the first time they've showed up at a planet with vex boats yeah as more than just we're working on this kind of stuff or we've we've let it leak that we're almost ready to use this technology that can travel in vex without moksha and so Everybody kind of knows they're really close, but this is the first time they've done it. And right. so that's like a really powerful um, leverage on their part, uh, like impact when they get there. Yeah. It's like the empire of science versus the empire of religion. But they had to have some kind of religious equivalent experience. They had to show that people would be capable of doing the same kinds of stuff without following the same type of religious belief. Right. And they do that. And of course, these these people are literally like spice addicted. They have to go through withdrawal in order to use the non-Moksha technolo technologies. Well, if they side with Gearheart, yeah. they're not going to have access to Moksha anymore. because So the Gearheart side of Gearheart faction, whatever, the planets that they have influence Gearheart on... Gearheart Coalition. The gear. Oh, that's right. Yeah. They they just kind of off the cuff name it. Yeah, they're the like, Gearheart yes, we Coalition. are now members of the Gearheart Coalition. And Marta's like, did we know we were starting an empire? And Leo's like, I guess. And it just named itself. Cool. Cool. I didn't have to think of that. Cool. I can drink more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Leo. So, uh, when you join the Gearheart Coalition, you're not going to have access to Moksha, and. That's a that, point. That's like a big sacrifice. But in exchange, you're not going to be under the heel of Hisaria and Mariga. Really, Mariga. Hisaria yeah, is just a pawn. Yeah. And, and so, like, they really have to convince these planets, like, if you get off of Moksha, we have Vex technology that's going to be reproducing some of the things that you were able to do yourselves, but you're not going to be under the heel of this authoritarian empire that's subjugating natives, like yeah. plain humans, and eating their children, like, a lot. Congratulations. And just wiping out Well, they're not going to show up and swaths. straight up murder you all and take over your planet. Right. That, that's the exchange, is you can join us and cooperate with us, but you have to give up the moksha. Or you can join them, and they're going to show up and murder 99% of you, and 
and I guess you're hoping that you're like part of the 1% that's left. Yeah. Uh, either alive and unoppressed, like un, uh, unenslaved. Yeah. And so it works on this first planet. They're convinced. Well, they asked them to come. Yeah, they asked Gearheart to come. Yeah, so Gearheart comes and signs it. And then on the way back, they begin um, accelerating exponentially, and they can't stop it. And the faster they travel, the faster time outside of Vex space passes. So by the time they get back to the planet, 40 years have passed. And it's been like a couple months, I think. It's, only, it's not been very long for them. Yeah. And they... I think what Lepus was hoping was that by the time Leo came back, he would have solved everything and he could just, he could make Leo feel better by just handing him the solution and it would right. all be finished. Here's the Gearheart Coalition and I've maintained the university and we have hundreds of planets now and blah, blah, blah. And nobody could kill you in the meantime. Right. That was Lepus's goal is to keep leo alive as a symbol yeah of the university oh he's on an extended mission on this vex boat see we're still like communicating with him with our like whatever radio yeah vex radio thing um see he's still alive he's still responding to stuff he's just yeah out of touch right now right but he'll be back eventually right but he's still alive. He's I still don't the think leader. they have the ability to converse with the planet when they're on the first fleet. Of oh, boats. you're right. They because don't. when they come back, technology has advanced far enough right. to be it's able to do new, it. The new ones that right. they can. Yeah. Because when they come back, the Bivnet clock is gone, and it's just like a sweepstakes, like like the billboards that tell you the current um, value of the Powerball lottery. Oh yeah, basically. And instead of venerating science and mathematics and the effort to save the galaxy, what what we are advertising is just money, banks. Uh, it's hypercapitalism. Yeah. yeah. Or as Leo says, what straddles a dream and a nightmare? Leo thought. There's no word for the thing. The gray between hope and despair. That's where we are now. That's where we'll live in the overcast middle of the world. <sighs> <laughs> and he has to go find Lepus because Lepus is missing, presumed dead. And it turns out he's shacked up with Theodora, who was the is the trifurcated version of who used to be the leader of the Devon Union. And not shacked up, they're married or together, and they have a child named Ursula. And the first thing he does is punch Lepus in the face. And he's like, What the fuck did you do? And he's and like, well, Lepus I tried. feels bad. He does. Well, what happened is when he left, he had put that woman in charge of economics and her quote son showed up after right, right after she passed away. Yeah. And Patzel, who's her son, um, did this. He wormed his way in. He discredited the Bivnik thing and was like, hey, I think we can use all of this technology to make our lives easier. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we making money off of this? Why aren't we making money? We need to privatize this. We need to privatize the university and make money off of this. And he made, he kicked people out. And now, like, everything that that woman had fought to, that Patzel, 
the woman had fought to get rid of like homelessness and poverty and all of that is all back. And it's just considered a necessary side effect of progress. Right. And I like this is the one moment where Leo does not roll over and take it because he immediately walks in and he fires Patzel. He's like, as far as I'm concerned, he pulls I'm still, rank. He's like, I'm still the dean of this university. And and, and he tries you to have object. And he's like, Nope. According to this this and this line in the university charter, which the university is the government of the planet. Yeah. Uh the dean has like absolute authority. Well, he's like, you could override it with the oh, council, right. but you disbanded the council. So good luck with that. Um, and you're fired. Get the fuck out. And so Patzel leaves and they take down all of the advertising banners and put back up the Bivnik schema. And But Petzl is still this uh, massively wealthy, like... Oligarch. Oligarch. He's an oligarch. Yeah. Yes. And so eventually they he's like, here's what's going to happen. You guys found the third coordinate for this this thing that we think Anaximander left for us. So now we can triangulate it. We know where to go. We're going. You're going to take our ships. You're going to upfit them so that they have all the latest technology on them, like artificial gravity and all of that stuff. Um, and then I and Marta are going to leave. And we're going to go find that planet. And we're going to figure out what an Aximander left. Well, we're Marta save the is going to go. He's going to stay and keep the university running. Right. Yes, and Lepus and Marta are going to like, go. I got to clean up this mess. Yeah. And he's sending Marta and Lepus. And in the end, what he does is leave early himself with well, Lepus. He realizes that he... He's not the one who can Ma save the world. Marta still has the passion to you know, fight to make the world a better place. Right. And he realizes that his passion to keep making the world a better place is just a thin veneer on top of his years of alcoholism and just trauma from his entire life. And so he, you know, twist, uh, leaves early and leaves Marta behind to take over as Dean. Right. He's, he's like, I'm sorry. I know you're never going to forgive me, but you are the one who can do this and not me. And through all this, he's actually set it up so that they're going to be having a debate because it's time for Burning Man again. And so they're going to get the crew at Burning Man and the crew at Gearheart to have a like a religious scientific debate. Yeah. And so Marta has to take up the mantle of debate. And she almost... Uh, I loved the back and forth, the back and forth between Mariga and yes. Marta, because Mariga shows up and Mariga's in his celestial garb. He has glowing necklaces hanging behind between his right. antlers. He's, he's pulling all the gimmicks. Yeah. And she shows up in her pajamas smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Like she rolled out of bed <laughs> and she's like, all right, let's do this. And we have. Well, she almost abdicates. And almost. I like that she's, she is uh, hurt. By Leo leaving. Yeah. Like, literally her dad abandoned her. Yeah. With with good intentions on his part. That's the only way that he knew how to pull that off. Right. And he trusted her that she would be strong enough to take that. And then, you know, 
become the dean and defend and maintain the university. Yeah. So, but she is almost not strong enough. Yeah. And this gave me this whole debate. Once she finally comes in, she rolls in her pajamas. She's like, wait, 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 wait. Yes, I'm the dean. I'm going to do this. And Petzl's like, no, we need to have a formal ceremony. She's like, no, we don't. I'm the dean. I say we don't. I'm the dean. Let's do this. That's the ceremony. That's the ceremony. We're done. And this gave me major like the end of Atlas Shrugged vibes. Yes. Where we just philosophy dump and Mariga gets his say, which was very triggering for someone who has a lot of religious trauma. Yeah. (laughs) And then she gets to refute it, which was very gratifying for someone who has a lot of religious trauma. And I highlighted a couple parts, but it's long I'm, and it's I brilliant. liked how Exerbia wrote this, where it's not like really elegant, formal, like philosophical, scientific counter arguments. She's mostly making the arguments in very approachable language. Yes. Yeah. I, I liked the part we say a lot. Uh, but we kind of reiterate a point that I like in Atlas Shrugged. You know, every moral code is a code of ethics. So every code of ethics accepted that you accept as a person mm-hmm. is your moral code. Yeah. You don't require external force to impose morality on you. You can be a moral being. And the religious idea that we are born evil also means we're born without free will, which negates the whole idea of the religion itself. And you can't say we're born with a tendency towards evil because that's saying the same thing. Right. A robot is amoral. A robot is amoral. Yeah. Someone who has no free will is a robot. A robot is amoral. So they talk about that because he says, you know, we need religion. We need something that tells people how to be good people. If we don't tell people how to be good people, how can we expect them to be good people? And she says, um, I've never behaved well just because I've been told to with the threat of hell or what have you. That isn't really good behavior at all. It's a celestial hostage situation. Yeah. I really liked that one. Um, she has quite a few really, really good ones. Um, above, despite, above despite the obvious drawbacks of such behavior, then all the suns will burn out long before we achieve even a scrap of the meta yes. Power is fine. Restraint is better. Technology saves some. Compassion saves all. I really like that one, too. Yeah. Um, and the era of false gods is over. Nothing is sacred. Everything is possible. Because in the end, she he like levitates using Moksha. And everyone's like, oh, my God, he really is really. Look how devoted he is. Look how capable he is. Look at what. Right, look how divine he look is. Look how divine he is. And she uses, because at this point, they've created these Vex exoskeletons. So it's right. like an invisible exoskeleton. Right. So in in the next. So he does that at the end of the second debate. Right. And then she she's like, well, shit, like he convinced a lot of people there. Um but I'm going to one-up him. Yeah. Because, okay, this imagery, this presentation thing works, but I have technology that can do that. Yeah. Yeah, so she levitates herself using a Vex skeleton. Yeah, at the end of the third debate. Yeah, and And she ends up winning. Like, she ends up convincing enough worlds that science is the way forward to save them all, that Bivnik will literally be stopped, and we will all be free of it, and we can all move forward as one people 
and we can let go the shackles that Mariga has given everybody, which is moksha, and mm-hmm. we can move forward into a more temper- temperate, like sustainable society. And so Mariga's assassin straight up murders everybody, Marta included. Yep. Before they can sign any treaty, before any paperwork can be filed. And Leo has to watch it. He has to watch the live stream. And be unable to stop it, including watching Marta's body be taken out by the spiles. And then the spiles refuse to refuse to let her body go. And they have to take the bodies away from the, her body away from the spiles. Because from the spiles point of view, she was, th- this was their hope. Like it their was last finally best go- hope. It was finally for... going to happen. Yeah, yeah. Their last best hope for peace. Yeah. <laughs> that was a Babylon five reference. Um, Wow, Babylon 5 is popping up a lot in this. Maybe because there's a lot of similar themes. Yeah. Yeah. And all through all this, we do get some Hisaria, and we find out that she's as much a victim as anybody is of Mariga. And that she has no one, just like Leo has no one. And keeping them apart has kept them isolated and kept them in this fear-induced state of just desperation. Right. And she ends up having a child with Pechev. Mariga convinces her that the only way forward is for her to have a child and for them to implant this child with Yana Moksha. Right. The same way that she can produce Moksha, they can prime this child to produce Jana Moksha in the same way. Because he's been forcing her to do drug trials for years. Right. And And she's messed up because of it. Yeah. One finally works. And she has this child, and she names it Ishto. Uh, Itzo is the nickname. Haristo, I think, is his full yeah. name. Yeah, and it, yeah, he lives in Vex. Like, he exists in Vex, and he can travel into Nibbana at will. And he can take people into Nibbana. And I thought there was going to be more with this plot line, but there really isn't. Right, it just- it's literally just a hook for Mariga to exploit as yeah. a way to get into Nibbana. Yeah. And this is one, this had the same plot hole for me that um, Interstellar does. And I didn't, I wasn't as mad at it in this one as I was in Interstellar. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you haven't watched Interstellar, I'm sorry. Here we go. Um, there's a part where we've finally gone through the wormhole. We're all sitting around trying to figure out what planet to go to first because we have three yes planets. And they have one, that water planet, the first planet that they go to. They're like, okay, she said yes, and the numbers look promising, but there's this other planet that's a little bit farther 